One, two, one, two, three, four. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. This episode, we're going to be interviewing Jamie Buss, VP of Sales North America for Zendesk. Uh, but before we do that, we've got an exciting new sponsor, and we wanted to talk a little bit about it. The company's called AirCall, and we want to thank them. They empower sales and support teams to ace every call with a phone system specifically built for their favorite business tools. With AirCall, you can now make every conversation count. Now, if you don't know uh, what that means, what I would encourage you to do is go to their homepage, which is aircall.io. Take a look, and there's a video that walks through some of the technology that they use. Uh, it looks like initially for support teams, and I know the reason that they're advertising with us is because they've got a sales module coming out very, very soon. So take a look at AirCall. They've been growing incredibly quickly, and I think everybody that's a customer is very, very happy. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Thanks. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. It's your friendly neighborhood host, Sam Jacobs. I've got a very special interview today. We're going to be talking to Jamie Buss. Jamie is currently the VP of Sales North America for Zendesk, but let me give you her quick bio. She's a veteran sales leader. She's got experience selling everything from SaaS to virtualization, storage, and networking. As I mentioned, she's running Sales North America for Zendesk. She leads a team of over 200 people, including field sales, hybrid AEs, SMB, and sales development reps, SDRs. During her 18-year sales career, she's held sales and leadership positions at Andreessen Horowitz, VMware, Coverity. Marikai, Coraid, and Inktomi. So welcome, Jamie, to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Excited to be here. We are excited to have you. So as we do, we start with your baseball card. As we mentioned offline, there's a tiny bit of discretion that we have to employ because uh, Zendesk is a public company. But very quickly, your name is Jamie Buss. Give us your title once more. Sure. Uh, VP of Sales of North America. And you're at Zendesk. For those that are in the Stone Age, what is Zendesk? What do they do? What do you guys do? And sort of rough revenue range, which we could also find by using Yahoo or Google Finance or something. Yeah, no problem. So we are a public company. Our, our latest earnings state call, we stated $500 million in annual run rate. So pretty big benchmark for us. We're really excited about that. Um, we are a support and ticketing platform, uh, primarily used B2C, B2B, um, internal use cases, anyone that needs to interact with a customer and be able to track those interactions. So our company is now at about um, 2,000 people uh, worldwide. And then we've got about 200 salespeople in North America um, organizations specifically. Wow. Well, that's impressive. And so you've been in startup land how long? Technically, I would say probably since 2000. So I joined Inc. to me back at that point, and uh, the allure of, of Silicon Valley kind of drew me in, and my career kind of took off from there. So probably just about 18 years. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a healthy amount of time. Let's go back to the beginning. So tell us where you're from, you know, where'd you grow up, and essentially, how did you end up at Zendesk running North America for a $500 million business? Walk us through a little bit of that progression for the younger people out there that want to emulate you. Sure. Well, I, I'll say that at first, I definitely did not see uh, myself landing in sales. I, I landed in the right spot, but I didn't get here uh, straight out of the gate. So um, actually from Southern California, natively, I grew up in Ventura County and went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for, for uh, undergrad, where I got an environmental engineering degree, which completely has nothing to do with what I do now. 
What drove that? Were you an interest in the environment, I suppose? Yeah, there was definitely an element of that. I really liked understanding how things worked and what could negatively affect the environment. But my mom actually thought I was crazy because I wasn't particularly strong in math in high school. And she's like, are you sure you want to do engineering? There's a heck of a lot of math. And I'm like, yeah, I've got to do something hard. Like I was really competitive. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to take like, you know, something that I didn't perceive as being something really challenging. So I definitely got what I asked for. Cal Poly was phenomenal school. I couldn't have have selected better for myself. In post-school, I went into consulting. So I worked for Deloitte for about a year. I probably would have stayed longer had Silicon Valley at that point, it hadn't quite imploded yet, right? It still was so exciting and companies that made absolutely no money, you could go work and get all this stock that would be worth something someday. I think we all kind of had the wool pulled over our eyes at that point. At least I did. I was 23. Cut me a little slack. There's nothing wrong with being optimistic. We value optimism in our trade. Exactly. So with stars in my eyes, I moved to Silicon Valley and that's where I started working at Inc. to me and got a sales engineering position there, which wasn't, you know, it was quoted, but as you know, it's not the same as having uh, the carrying the bag yourself. So I did a lot of the demos, I did the technical work. What did Ink to Me do? They were search. So they did um, like internal search. Like I think most people probably use Google or some other application now at this point. Autonomy, I think, used to do that. But basically, like if you had an intranet, you would need to search your content. And back then, companies didn't really have a good way of doing that. So we would crawl all your content, help you create indexes and menus and all that kind of stuff so that internal content would become more accessible. And so you're at Deloitte, you know, and I, you know, we're the same generation. I remember the job market back then. It was insane. So you're in this fairly stable consulting world. Sales engineer isn't often the path that people from consulting choose to take. Oftentimes they need to sort of insert themselves in strategy. How did you think about making that decision? So when I first joined Ink to Me for six months, I was brought in under the IT organization to help bridge a gap between sales and IT on the applications that sales needed. So that was the six-month tenure, at which point I presented my first application to the head of sales engineering for Ink to Me, and he said, you should be in sales. Like, what are you doing? This seems to happen a lot to sales leaders. We, We find ourselves in one job, and then just the gravity of sales draws us in. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought about it before that. And I think I'm like, you know, that that could be interesting. So I took the leap and did that. And then I did that very well. But what I really loved about that job was not answering the technical questions and creating the demos. I really loved winning. I loved being part of the team that won the largest deal for the quarter. And how could we strategize to win it? And that's, you know, into me, I was there about two and a half years, just shy of three years, I think. And by the end of that point, we'd had round and round of layoff, which I'm sure you also lived through the 2002 period where that Silicon Valley bubble popped and we all kind of got dropped out of the bottom of that. And you know, I found myself laid off at whatever I was, 24, 25 years old, something like that, which was shocking, right? Because to your point, I had this nice stable job at Deloitte. My parents thought I was crazy to go join Silicon Valley. You just don't do that, right? You don't leave a good job for a risk. And I told them, I'm like, ah, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to find something. Don't worry. But the good thing was, I really built a phenomenal network at Inc. to me. I mean, I'm still in contact and have gotten several jobs out of the folks that I met um, back then. And a lot of that crew had moved over to VMware. And I'll be honest, I didn't even realize how great of a product VMware was at the time. All I knew was I had great connections there and I wanted to carry a bag. I did not want to be a sales engineer. That for someone to take a risk on me, having never seen me carry a bag before, I was going to have to go somewhere where people knew me. So... I tried getting some some positions where I t- people might take a chance on me that didn't know me, but I really pursued VMware hard. And I had to get on the phone first with car- with with the hiring managers, Brian Cox at the time, t- 
talked to him. He said, talk to Carl. I convinced Carl Eschenbach. I was, I want, really wanted to do it. Take a chance on me. They brought me into interview and I had to sit down at that point. There was only 10 salespeople on the VMware sales team. I literally had to interview with Diane Green, being as young as I was, uh, and convince her that I could be a great sales rep for her team. So I still remember that day clearly. I know exactly where that office was. Um, fortunately, must have done well enough to get the job. Um, so I made that transition from Ink to Me post being laid off, landed as an account executive at Ink to Me at VMware covering the Northeast. So I was an inside sales rep covering the Northeast, lowest performing territory out of all of them. So nothing like a challenge of dropping in as a rep and being at the bottom. How was the training and the onboarding at that point? I will tell you exactly what the training was. The training was, here's your computer. Here's your phone. It's ringing. You better fucking pick it up. Well, as long as the phone's ringing, I mean, that's that's a benefit that many of us don't have. That is very true. And VMware was a very unique situation. I don't think... I've not had that scenario since. Um, I may never again. You know, we were in a very, very unique position. It was a product that worked very well. It was brand new to the market. We had no competitors and it made a ton of sense because you can consolidate 20 servers onto one. So even for a test dev environment, it was not, um, it was a phenomenal product. We were, I was really, really lucky to, you know, to get that position. And then because the company grew so fast, probably about every 18 months, I was able to kind of get a promotion. So I moved from, you know, AE to inside sales manager. I managed a bunch of teams for about 18 months or so, maybe a little longer. And then from there, I became director of all of Inside Sales um, for, for North America and LATAM. I did not have worldwide, but that still was a pretty sizable organization. And I did that for a couple of years, opened up the Austin office from scratch. Did you move to Austin? I did not. I considered it at the time. What I did at the time is I spent 50% there, time there, 50% time here in Palo Alto. My husband and I considered it, but he, he had a great job in, the, in Silicon Valley and it was, a, it was a tough choice, but we decided to stay um, in the Bay yeah. Area. So one quick question. There's a lot to unpack here. So the first thing is that you're mid-20s, you just got laid off, but some, one of the things you just said was, you know, I needed to go somewhere where I had a lot of connections. It feels to me that you, I don't know if it was intuition or you developed, you know, this insight specifically and intentionally, but you seem to understand the power of networking pretty early on. Did that just come to you or did some mentor sort of articulate, hey, you need to build a network, you need to have relationships across the valley so that if this thing doesn't work, you've got plenty of options? That's a very good question. I had two very important you know, folks who helped me out that, that job. Actually, even at Deloitte, my, you didn't really have a boss there, but you had somebody who would kind of report back on your work. And even that early on, what they really do well at the agent, at those consulting firms is they teach you how to be a professional and they instill in you that you are a brand and you've got to think about what is that brand that you want to be. And then the network that you build is how you're going to capitalize on that brand. Because a lot of that consulting world is about um, networking. And that was reinstilled for me at Ink to Me. I had two great mentors there as well, um, Stephen Lee and then Dan Bauhaus. Both of them, I think, gave me really good foundational advice. You know, I, I really build my brand around executing. I want to do a good job. I want to deliver what's uh, above and beyond what's expected of me. 
you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about response time on emails. I really strive to be same day as long as it's sent to me within a you know reasonable hours during that day. I like to get shit done. Like if you give me something, you do not have to worry that it's not going to happen. It's always going to happen. And so a lot of these things I was already kind of thinking about at a really early age. And because I was delivering good work and building that brand, but in an authentic way, I established all those connections. So people had some good um, perception of me and were willing to take that chance on me into another role. I think, well, there you go. There's a really powerful benefit of consulting because I think a lot of young people don't quite realize what you just said, which is that you are your brand and you have to build it. So you got to VMware and it sounds like you mentioned every 18 months or so you happen to, you jumped on a unicorn and the company's growing incredibly quickly and you're moving from individual contributor to manager. What was that transition like? And I think one of the questions that I actually got from a buddy of mine that I that used to work for me, Michael Sarunian, said, you know, let, on the podcast, can you guys talk about making the jump from individual contributor to manager? What was that like for you? Yeah. And you know, I have to, this is actually one of the topics that, which I know we're jumping way ahead, but I was so passionate about this topic that I actually built a program for it at A16Z um, where we'd bring in the portfolio companies individuals, their reps that wanted to be managers or were early managers actually kind of like taught a course on the transition between being an IC and then kind of management 101. Because I, I really feel like this is a huge gap in, in corporate America, whether you're at, I don't know, maybe the big companies have it a bit better. I have typically been at startups where you're just really, you get to be top of your trade and then you're moved on to management and you're just expected to make everyone else be excellent the way you are. And you're not taught that it's a completely different job that operates in the gray area every single day, that part of your job is being a counselor, that part of your job is get making answering questions that really don't have a right or wrong answer. So it's like, how do you become the manager that people want to follow and want to work hard for? How do you become that type of manager? So a lot of the things that I kind of had to teach myself, because I made a lot of mistakes. I think the, the hardest transition for me was IC to manager, and it was because of those reasons. I would have the same set of standards for my best rep as I would for my least, lowest performing rep which absolutely makes no sense in retrospect. But I didn't know. I was like, well, I guess I need to set fair, right? Treat everyone quote unquote fairly. And so everyone should have the same expectation. That's not exactly true, right? So there's a lot of like little nuanced things. And my one-on-ones, I treated every one-on-one was like a grilling forecast call. Well, where was my rep ever going to get feedback? Where were they ever going to hear what they're doing well? Where were they ever going to have an opportunity to develop their own career and make sure that I understood what motivates them and how am I coaching them to get there? All those components, no one ever really taught me. So what I had to do is I, I kind of sought out. So one, I'll throw out one of my favorite books. It's an oldie but a goodie. People make fun of me because this is an older book, but first break all the rules. Oh my God, I was going to mention that. It is my, by far, I've read a million of them. This one is by far my favorite because it's so practical. And what you can do is they've got these core 12 questions that you can ask yourself, how would my reps answer these questions? Have I received feedback in the last week? Do I feel valued in my job? All those types of things, right? It's an incredible book. And the very first question they ask in there is, do I know what's expected of me? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes and that actually, I lay that out in the training is like, sometimes you have to be really explicit, especially when the people are younger in their career. You have to remember, not everyone went to a consulting job right out of college and was taught how to be a professional. We've had to have conversations with reps on what's appropriate and not appropriate on what to wear to work. Oh my. I mean, that's always been a thing to talk about. And I'm always scared to talk about it as an older man. 
I try to delegate it to HR. Yeah, yeah. There have definitely been instances where, and I have a lot of female leadership on my team. Where sometimes, um, if it is a female that's in question, that one of us will take that conversation instead because it is a bit uncomfortable for some of the men if it's an opposite gender conversation. But yeah, I mean, you, you'd be surprised. You have to lay out sometimes when they're expected to be at work or what the expectations are around kickoff. Do you know, I've literally, I've had so many challenges with people, you know, you have the party at a kickoff the, the night of and the next morning you got QBRs. And then you always have one or two reps that have completely missed the QBR and are drunk in their rooms or whatever. And I lay it out every single time beforehand. It's like, it's still a work event. This is not your bachelor party. You're expected to post in the morning. Let me be clear. So sometimes you, you have to be more clear than you even think you need to be. How did it go? I mean, so, you know, you're maybe a younger manager and now you're an experienced manager. As you're making this progression through VMware, was your intuition pretty unerring or did the growth of the business kind of mask some of the growing pains until you were ready to sort of step into, you know, the more senior roles? I think I did learn a lot, even though, you know, VMware was doing well, but I had large size teams. I mean, even when I was a field man, so last role I had there, I managed a field team, but it was of nine people from Washington, DC down to, you know, through Southern California. So my teams were never small. It could have had 15 inside sales reps reporting to me, nine field reps. I mean, that's arguably a little bit spread too thin. But, you know, I kind of learned from, you know, interactions with the reps and sometimes they would be early on, they would provide me feedback of like, Hey, you know, I'm, how do I manage my career here? And then I started to take a step back. I'm like, I need to educate my, myself better on, on how to do this job. And that's when I started doing a lot of research. That's when I read First Break All the Rules and a million other leadership books. I actually still subscribe to HBR because sometimes they have some really good research articles done out of Google and some other places that have, have done a lot of benchmarking and surveys on what does it take to be a good manager or a good leader. So I just consumed as much material as I could and kind of built that you know, kind of leadership profile over time. Wow. I mean, I think that's, again, maybe it's your own intuition or maybe it's instinct, but you know, your instinct to go outside of the confines of the job itself and make sure that you're educating yourself is obviously a best practice. So VMware was a wild ride. I'm curious, how did you end up at Andreessen? And obviously that's, you know, one of the the better known investors in the world at this point. And, and what'd you do for Andreessen? And then how'd you end up at Zendesk? Well, those are excellent questions. So in between VMware and Andreessen Horowitz, I did work at three different startups, which was actually gave me really, really great experience and preparation for Andreessen Horowitz. What'd you learn from those startups after being at VMware? Okay. Do you know those people who join your company and they go, well, at VMware, we did this. At VMware, we did that. So that was me, probably my first job out of VMware. And now I look back now, people are like, well, when I was at Salesforce, I did this. And when I was at Salesforce, I did that. And I just kind of roll my eyes and like, you'll learn. You'll couple company, couple companies later, you'll learn. The biggest thing I learned was that you cannot make an assumption on the right GTM model based on what's worked for you in the past. I think that was my biggest, most naive mistake. I'd like to just blame myself, but I see other people do it, even at you know various companies I've been at is making that assumption of, well, just because I did verticalization at this other company at this time, it's the right time to do it for this one. Not necessarily by a long shot. I think you you cannot try to do unnatural acts to get a product to market. Either it's going to be high velocity, bottoms up, people can try it, they can buy it easily, and it can scale to enterprise. Or it's a top-down enterprise sale, got to be sold wall-to-wall, C-levels involved. You're not going to get the enterprise, C-level, you're not going to be able to sell inside sales. The inside sales is not going to work for that. I mean, you could want it because it's cheaper, 
And a lot of people do, but it's just not going to work. And sometimes from the bottoms up company, like it just not might, you know, mid-market might be where that needs to be. And maybe you don't need field sales. Maybe inside sales is what you need. So I think what I learned was I really had to study the natural motion for that product. How easy was it to try? How quick was that trial? Was that trial free? Was it a freemium model? Was there no trial at all? What was the ASP? What is the sales cycle? And once I kind of learned, like kind of put these stats together, then I could start to pattern match. All right, this is what you need. You need field sales and SDRs. I don't know why you're messing with the inside sales. And that's what I think I brought when I went to Andreessen Horowitz. And I'll, I'll talk through my role there. But the lessons I learned post VMware, I think actually made me tremendously more valuable at the A16Z role. It makes uh, so much sense. And certainly... It's the perils of success too early in your career when you all of a sudden assume that the reason VMware got to work. For my, in my case, it was Gerson Lerman Group, but it was the same thing. It went to $300 million in revenue. Everything we tried worked. And of course, you come out of there thinking you're a genius, and that's not quite how No, I know. You're like, well, of course, it's because of what I did. <laughs> well, that's what it says on LinkedIn. I tell everybody, I mean, of course it was me. Exactly. One question I have, I really, really strongly agree with you that you kind of, the market will tell you in many ways what, how it wants to be sold and, you know, how it wants to digest the product. I guess the question is if you're pitching yourself as a VP of sales out there and you're saying, I've done it all, I've seen it all, how much time do you give yourself to just sit and listen and figure it out before you feel that pressure of saying, okay, now it's time for me to get off my ass and make sure that we have a plan that I'm leading the troops up the hill on? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you mean once I get in the company, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I don't usually sit back. What, what I do is first, I keep the trains running on time for what's there and running because I'm not going to come in and make grand sweeping changes on day one. First of all, I don't know enough yet to do that. So I try to figure out, okay, from the team, what are some low hanging issues that I can help block and tackle for them to gain their trust early? Right. So can I, what's an easy, like, what's some wins I can get for the team? What are some things that have really been um, painful for them that I can knock down while I'm learning a little bit more about the business and where my coverage is? Where is my coverage lacking? Do I have troops in all the right locations? And then I'll start kind of changing some of the most acute things as quickly as I can while I'm kind of figuring out the longer, more strategic bets. Right. Like an easy one might be I came into Zendesk and we had nine SDRs, but that's for inbound and outbound. And we get a lot of inbound. So I was like, well, where's our outbound pipeline? I'm like, yeah, we don't really do outbound. I'm like, well, does anyone do outbound? I'm like, no, no, we don't. We don't do outbound. I'm like, okay, well, that's something that I can fix that. <laughs> With, give me enough money and I can fix that. Exactly. So I built into my, I had a, you know, I had a quota and I had an expense envelope and I made sure that I could make SDRs fit into that. So I don't feel as if I can come in and make sweeping changes right out of the gate. But I do ask a lot of questions so that I can understand where the challenges are, where our opportunities are, and then start to, to make changes from there. That makes sense. I, of course, I interrupted you before, but you made your way after learning uh, through the School of Hard Knocks, you made your way to Andreessen. And I think it's also going to be interesting for people to understand. I think for probably a lot of people in the world, Andreessen would be the final destination. You know, that would be where they want to get in their career. How did you figure out to go from Andreessen into another operating role? We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. So let me walk you through that. So when I started at Andreessen Horowitz, so the operating partner is Mark Cranny, who I think you're familiar with, Mark. Yeah, many people are. Very famous sales leader. He is, exactly. He like, And all those things they say about him in the book are true. 
but I, I learned a ton from him. But anyways, he had a recruiter ping me on LinkedIn. And at first I was like, what the heck? Why is a recruiter from Andreessen Horowitz pinging me for a job there? This made no sense to me because I didn't really understand their model. Second to that, I was six months pregnant with my second child. And I'm like, I don't want to interview. I'm going to walk in looking like a house. Like what the, I don't want to go right. This is not what you interview. But you know, actually, you know, Josh Leslie, he's CEO of Cumulus now. He's a good friend of mine. And he said, you know, James, you just might want to take that call. You know, it's a great company. Just take the call. So I did. And I passed the recruiter screen and and met with Mark for an hour. And, you know, he joked with me, you know, the first thing he saw was my stomach, like, you know, 10 feet before he actually saw me. I'm like, it's the second kid. What can I say? I interviewed with Mark and I think, you know, we, we hit it off quite well. I think he loves to know, like his interview style, I actually learned a lot from him. He wants to know where you're from, what your parents did, what birth order you are. Like he's really trying to figure out like, are you, you take chances? Are you a leader? And you know, I kind of picked up a lot of those things that, I, that I've used subsequent to that. Got that job. What that job was, it was part operating. So I did have a team there and it was part kind of consultative. So the team part was, Andreessen Horowitz runs, I think one of the best briefing centers. Of course, I'm biased, but I think they have an excellent executive briefing program that Mark had built where we would bring in C-level executives from Fortune 500, Global 2000, et cetera, to meet with either for half or full day session with our portfolio companies. And we'd custom curate it, right? So we had business development reps that would talk to the executive, really understand their top initiatives for the year, and then curate whether it's like security or SaaS software, whatever the you know, themes were that were important to that company, we'd curate it and then bring in the portfolio companies to present. So what my team was responsible for doing was figuring out what companies had no relationship with A16Z, not portfolio companies or potential um, portfolios, but the big uh, enterprise companies. We would do outreach. And these are in some these are both market feedback for the portfolio companies, but also maybe actual potential acquirers, partners, customers. Is that right? We were going for customers. Well, our goal was to drive pipeline and deals and give access to the portfolio company to C-level and let them sell top down in a way that they ordinarily would not have been able to do. That is incredibly valuable. Well, there's a, there's something besides just the money itself that makes A16Z valuable. Absolutely. And I felt really good about it because I knew having run sales teams for startups, how difficult it was, if not impossible, to get that C-level meeting, especially right out of the gate. So we were able to provide that. It was a free service. So there's no cost. And a lot of these C-level executives do come out to the Valley for a Valley tour. So what we would try to do is make sure when they're coming out to Silicon Valley, that Andreessen Horowitz is one of the stops they'd make on that trip. So my team was responsible for kind of like top of funnel, getting new interest. And then I also had kind of junior business development reps who would also run the briefings and, and that kind of thing as well. So I did that for about three and a half years towards the tail end of that. I loved that job. I learned so much. I was so privileged to be able to sit in the room with Ben and Mark and the other uh, general partners when they were listening to pitches and, and then afterwards listening to their feedback on whether or not they'd make an investment. I mean, it, I felt like I was in the heart of Silicon Valley and had access to things that I just never even imagined I would have access to. So extremely fortunate and, and thankful for that opportunity. Towards the end of that three and a half years, though, you know, I did a lot of counsels with the portfolio companies. Oftentimes, as a, as a technical founder, they have no idea how to build a comp plan. They have no idea who to hire first, when to do inside sales versus field sales. So I would do a lot of counsels with asking them about their product and understanding it and then helping give them some, point them in the right direction of, hey, here's how I think about it. Give them some tools to help them do it. But I felt like, you know, by the end of that, I was like, put me in the game, coach. I just want to do it myself. 
So, and at that point, my kids were a little older. You know, my son was three years old. My daughter, you know, was seven. So I, I felt like, you know, they weren't babies anymore. They were both in the same school. It made our life a little bit easier. And that allowed me to, you know, go back to a job that was going to require more travel um, and a bit more time away from home than, uh, you know, the, the A16Z job did. So I kind of you know, was kind of balancing that work-life balance too. As, as a mom, you know, you got to make, as a parent, I should say, you just, you need to make those decisions on when is it right to lean in? When is it right to you know, maybe change the career path a little bit so that you can feel you're spending enough time with the kids? Did you want to be an investor? Did you ever find yourself wishing that you were Ben or Mark or actually leading the investment for a fund? Or do you always think of yourself as an operator or sort of TBD? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, at this point in my life, I really, really love being an operator. I love my team. I have so much fun. I love this job. But you never can say never, right? Because I don't know where, where my career is going to go from here. And there could be at some point where it does make sense for me. And I would perhaps want to pursue that type of career. But where I'm at right now, this is what's fun to me. Like, I really like living and dying by the sword and it's sharpest when you're in the field. (laughs) I agree with you. I'm not sure. You know, it seems to be the destination of a lot of people to end up on the buy side making investments. But for me, I don't have enough of an opinion just through the sort of pitch process for me to develop a point of view on whether or not to make an investment. So I just tend to like being in the guts of the thing where where I develop conviction. That, that might be too. And I'm also not a gambler and it feels like gambling to me. So that's the other thing that makes me a little bit concerned about investing. <laughs> yeah, it could be. So now let's get some specifics. There's a lot of people out there that are running much smaller businesses, obviously, than yours. And it's always interesting to understand organizational design. So give us a glimpse of first, what was the org that you inherited when you joined Zendesk? And then what does it look like now? And what sort of teams did you build? And how did you, you know, to your point about listening to market feedback, how did you think about making the decisions to stand up those teams and make those investments? So when I came here, it was a pretty sizable inside sales team and kind of a limited field team. So the way that it was structured and we kind of built upon it from there, as I mentioned, they had a small SDR team, primarily inbound. They were technically hybrid, but really didn't have any time for anything else other than inbound. Then we have um, what we call Velocity, but technically is like an SMB team that covered all customers. They covered everything from qualifying their own leads to closing deals in under 100 employee space. And then we had everything over 100 employees was covered by territories, which was a combination of AEs or account executives or more of that hybrid account executive. And then there were they were set up in pods, which they still are today. It's a little bit of a unique structure where there's one field rep for every four inside sales reps. And the reason for that is because we are still much more highly transactional than we are a ton of large, long sales cycle deals. So the way I look at the pod is you know, if you look at their if they're a hunting team and they're going out there and, and hunting in the forest, like sometimes they're gonna flush out a lot of rabbits and my AEs can track, you know, chase all those down. But every now and then you're gonna have you're gonna flush out a buck and I need the field rep to be able to take that down because the, the inside sales reps just, you know, either don't have the tenure or they're not physically present with the client to help to get that deal done. So we had the pod structure in place. The challenge on the top end of the business though was most of those field reps were located in like they weren't located in the, the cities I needed them in, right? Most of them were in San Francisco, a couple maybe in the territories I needed them, and then in New York. So one of the changes I did was we changed the field structure so they were in the primary football cities and I'd have coverage uh, where, where most of our business was. And then I also took the SDRs, separated them inbound, outbound. So as you know, you probably get about a 25% uplift by separating them. 
we definitely saw that and then some. And in fact, our outbound program is now outpacing our inbound in terms of pipe gen. Oh, wow. So that was a pretty phenomenal turnaround. And then... Is that because of more deals or higher deal size? It, well, the outbound, is, the outbound does have about a double of the ASP of the inbound. So the average sale price is definitely higher. They take longer to close and they're closed. Obviously their conversion rate is not as high, but they're getting us into logos that we ordinarily would not have been at. And because they're focused, they're able to obviously drive a lot more than the one outbound maybe they could do before, right? When there was only nine of them. Is there a self-service component to Zendesk? There is. Another good question. So, and I think you and I talked a little bit about this before. What we do is there is self-service. And for a lot of our SMB clients, that's the way they want to operate. But sometimes they will interact with a sales rep and the sales rep will just tell them, hey, listen, like, great, you're set. Go ahead and buy those licenses online. It'll be, it'll be easier. So they do, but I do not want to spend time arguing over who helped who and who gets credit on which deal. So what we do is we give everyone a bit of a higher quota and then they'll get credit for any deal that's self-service or not in their patch. I just handle it with quota rather than quibbling over who gets credit on what. But yeah, they, there is self-service component and they are paid on it. And to the point of the patch, so they have like a geographic territory or they have some lead rotator, but somehow, you know, every transaction that happens at Zendesk, whether it's through a salesperson or on its own, is accounted for. Yes. So the SMB team, the under 100 employees, they're round robin. And if they've closed a deal before, that's considered their part of their book. That becomes part of their book of business and they can sell expansion into that book of business. So the book of business is spread out amongst everyone, but the new inbounds are rotated. Interesting. We talked about this before, but I dealt with the same thing at Livestream. And it wasn't more about credit. It was more about understanding what was the impact of the sales machine on the overall growth of the business. Because sometimes you're worried that um, you're just applying a sales attribution on something that would have happened anyway. Yep. No, exactly. So we've got probably five or 10 more minutes. Wanted to first just get a little bit more about uh, the technology that you're using. So first of all, you just mentioned that your outbound team is generating more pipeline than even your inbound team. What are the tools that you're using to do that? And what's one of your favorite technologies that's in your tech stack? This actually kind of surprised me, but we had bought a tool called Sixth Sense last year. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone really understood how we were supposed to use it. So we kind of sat on it for a while. Then somehow I think they realized that we're a pretty big account oh gosh, maybe we should nurture Zendesk a little bit. So they reached back out and trained my team on how to use it. And they've been able to turn over a lot of significant logos by using that. And I think now this is a bit, you know, I've got a director who runs, a senior director who runs that org. From my understanding, they're able to really see who has buying tendencies, who's looking for support offerings, where they're looking on our website, other things that they're looking at that might indicate that they're kind of more in a, in a buying cycle. We actually had one of our prospects that uh, one of my AEs noticed them looking around um, Zendesk and they said, you know what? Totally SDR, go outbound to them. He did. And the customer says back to us, that's so weird that you just called me. We were about to send you an email. <laughs> oh, wow. That's and, and it's called Sixth Sense? Yes. The outbound team loves it. So they've been getting... And the AEs too. That it, Both AEs and the SDRs. Because my AE is outbound as well. So everyone's expected to build their own pipeline via expansion and for new. So just because they have SDRs does not mean they're off the hook for you know doing their own outbound. So they've both been using it and that's been pretty successful. What's the percentage of the pipeline that you expect an AE to contribute or generate versus, you know, outbound SDR versus inbound? That is a good question. And I don't know that we actually have it divided up specifically between the outbound of the SDRs and the outbound of the AEs. Because collectively, we're trying to get... Right now, the outbound effort is driving half of the pipe gen. 
I would say probably 75% of that, if not 80% are my SDRs and 25% of the AEs. And that's just because the AEs don't have as much time, but they're doing a significant amount of pipe gen um, on their own. And then the AEs, the rest of their pipe generation is based on expansion. Because obviously we've got a pretty large expansion business as well. Yeah. Your expansion business is probably massive. When we're thinking about paying it forward, so we're getting to the end of our time together, sadly, but when you think about advice, particularly as, you know, there's a lot of discussion, uh, and I've asked other people on the pod about this, as a woman in, in a position of power, what advice would you give to the female leadership and the up-and-coming female account executives as you navigated your career? How should they think about that? I will give you the female you know, leaders, potential female leaders. I think the best piece of advice I could give them is go pick up or listen to The Confidence Code. I wish I had read it a long time ago. Um, I think that we as women tend to wait until we're 110% ready to take on a new opportunity. I know that's been my, you know, that's been my MO for a lot of my career. And what I think we need to realize is that our male counterparts tend to maybe be feel there might be 60% ready, but they're all in. Like they're going for that next role. So we're kind of sitting back and waiting to be over ready. And it has a lot to do with biology and kind of how our chemistry works. But I really think there's an opportunity for women to get out over your skis a little bit, you know, make yourself a little bit uncomfortable. You're going to do just as well as anyone else. And don't let yourself be the one that's holding yourself back. Interesting. So, I mean, not completely, but a little bit of like, fake it till you make it. Present, you know, domain expertise and subject matter expertise, maybe slightly ahead of your actual experience and just jump in and, and figure it out as you go. Yeah. Because you know what? There's always going to be an element of that. You're never going to be, if you wait till you're 100% ready, then it could be too late. Yeah. It's great advice. Last question. So, you know, favorite other VPs of sales or other people that we should know about, you know, as we're making a list of people that we want to know, we want to appreciate and recognize their work. Who are some of the, imp- the people that have impacted you over the last you know, 20 years? I think the two VPs of sales that stand out to me most are going to be Carl Eschebach, who's now um, a over at Sequoia, but I worked with him at Inc. To Me. Uh, he was, became COO eventually over at VMware. Carl, never late for a meeting, will still return my texts like within the same hour, if not minutes of me texting him, which I find amazing. Probably still remembers my husband's name, my dog's name. He's just one of those leaders that you could literally fall off a cliff. Like He's just so phenomenal at what he does. I don't know a single person who's worked with him. Both C-staff level, IC level, it doesn't matter. He's just one of those charismatic leaders that I think are really hard to come across. And then Mark Cranny too. If you know, go read Hard Thing About Hard Things... There's a lot of really great wisdom in that book overall. I think Ben is a phenomenal founder. He's extremely bright, very personable, very funny. And Mark is the quintessential battlefield general. I don't think there's anyone that can kind of lead in a very competitive market as well as he can and really get the right troops in place, fight for the right comp plans. Like Mark is quintessentially top down, uh, one of probably the best enterprise uh, VPs from that perspective. Awesome. That's great advice. One question is, are you guys hiring? Or if people want to reach out to you and get in touch with you after hearing this, what is your preferred uh, communication channel? I am hiring. We are hiring for our second half where most of my hiring takes place. So we've got openings in everything from SDR, account executive, and I've got three offices. I'm right now for account executives. I'm only hiring in New York and in San Francisco. And then we've got some field positions as well. I think my management roles are 100% filled. Yay. I'm super excited about that. But yeah, we're definitely hiring. And then to um, outreach to me, I think probably LinkedIn might be the best. So Jamie Bus, go ahead and cl- connect to me there. I am JF Bus. So J 
F is in Francine, B-U-S-S on Twitter. So you can reach out to me there as well. And I, I could definitely respond. But yeah, go get, connect to me that way. And lo- love to hear from the audience. And if they're interested in Zundesk, I can definitely get them connected to the right folks here. That's fantastic. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for participating in the podcast. And I hope to see you in person soon the next time I'm on the West Coast. Thanks so much, Sam. Looking forward to it. Good. Thanks so much. Bye. Another wonderful uh, interview with Jamie Buss, VP of Sales North America from Zendesk. This is Sam's Corner. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Jamie has been doing this a long time. She spent time at Andreessen, where she helped portfolio companies get access to the most senior executives at corporate America. She's also spent time building sales teams and building leadership teams at places like VMware. So she's seen a lot. And she's even seen you know, the failed startups, both in the, uh, the early dot-com bubble bust and subsequent to her time at VMware before she got to Andreessen. So I think, first of all, her experience is incredibly relevant. Two things, one very generic and strategic, and then the second pretty tactical. The generic and strategic is, she said, and it was directed at the women in the audience, but it's really to everybody, don't wait till you have 100% confidence in your expertise on a new endeavor before jumping in. The timing is really, really important when it comes to a new role, when it comes to a new job. So make sure that you're a little bit uncomfortable and that there's something that you're going to have to learn because if you feel completely comfortable, it's likely that the opportunity is going to go to somebody else. That's kind of thing number one. That's the strategic and generic. Here is the highly tactical, which is a lot of different go-to-market models, but there are inbound leads coming. There's a self-service channel. There's a lot of channel conflict. And Jamie goes ahead and comps her inside sales team that processes both the self-service leads and the sort of SMB transactions. She comps all of those transactions towards quota as long as the salesperson has touched the lead. And I think that removes a lot of the source of conflict when you're trying to attribute uh, revenue to self-service and you don't want to give credit to the sales team. Easier to just give all of the credit to the sales team for the purposes of quota attainment so that you remove all of the channel conflict from the low end part of the business, which I think is the right move. And it's obviously one that uh, I would pursue where I hurt. So those are two tidbits from Sam's Corner. Final thing, go out and read uh, First Break All the Rules. It's the best management book there is. And she's damn right about that. Thanks for listening. This has been Sam's Corner. I will see you on the next episode. To check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our incredible lineup of sales leaders, visit saleshacker.com slash podcast. You can find the Sales Hacking Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. And I've seen a lot of people sharing a lot of insights from the podcast, so thank you very much for doing that. Please continue to do so. Finally, special thanks again to this month's sponsors at Aircall. See more at aircall.io. I've been following the company pretty closely. They've been growing at a torrid rate. I know they just raised a big round of financing. And their VP of Marketing, Jeffrey Kurz, is going to be a guest on future episodes of the podcast. So uh, check out Aircall. And then finally, finally, if you want to get in touch with me, find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Sam F. Jacobs. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.